0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hi, this is Dr. Rob Weiss. I am so glad that you folks are here. And as always, thanks for coming to the podcast. I've heard lately that a lot of spouses and folks have been really listening to this, even in the car, and finding it valuable. And then they turn to the person struggling with their addiction and say, Here, listen to this. So, whatever you guys get to learn or share about that heals you or your family, that is the gift that I get by doing this. I want to introduce a colleague and someone I'm getting to know as a friend. He is really involved not only in treatment, but sort of in the higher level of doing research on how that works on being involved with organizations at a high level where he can help examine uh, improving the field. And I really wanted to talk to you guys about some of the struggles that we have, you know, like insurance won't take, the sex and love addiction issues, gambling, forget it, you know. So I really wanna talk about it from the man who knows some of this stuff. So let me read you a little bit about Dr. Weiner. Aaron Weiner, PhD, ABPP, is a board-certified psychologist and an addiction specialist. He speaks nationally on the topics of addiction, behavioral health, and the impact of drug policy on public health. He earned his doctorate from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and completed his fellowship, the Addiction Psychology Program, at the VA, the Veterans Association, in, in the Ann Arbor Healthcare System. So he knows... Some tough cases, really, and works with uh, a lot of folks that some others don't want to necessarily, and so good for him. His perspective is informed by years of experience growing and directing addiction service lines for hospitals and healthcare systems, looking at the current state of medical and psychological research in this arena, and his own observations in his private practice. Dr. Weiner is president of the Society of Addiction Psychology, a member of the Physician Speakers Bureau for the National Safety Council, and on the Science Advisory Board for Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Welcome, Dr. Weiner. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. You have such an impressive CV. Um, I feel a little intimidated talking to you, but I also know what a nice guy you are, and so that kind of relieves some of my anxiety. Oh my gosh, you are too kind. You know, we talked about what to talk about today, and I was thinking based on your experience and the work that I do, I thought we'd talk about some of the challenges in the acceptance of the culture in general. And then challenges with the medical field, the psychological field, the addiction field, in accepting and understanding what we call a process addiction, which aren't drugs and alcohol. They're things like gambling or gaming or porn or sex, because those of us dealing with sex addiction fit into a larger uh, umbrella of behavioral addictions. Sometimes they cross with drugs and alcohol, but most often we're dealing with people who have a very addictive behavior. And so,
1: Dr. Weiner, tell us tell us what you think and know yeah well it's so it's such an interesting and misunderstood area I, I think addictions in general there's this there's this layer of misunderstanding and stigma about like you know what what role do genetics play what role do chemicals play and, and then when you get down to we're not putting a chemical per se into our body it's not like you're putting alcohol in or thc in or an opioid in but it's that someone's doing a behavior that might release these endogenous in the body chemicals but isn't it, so it's rewarding in that way but not with chemicals it almost i feel like is even harder for the public to understand and lawmakers to to understand or even prioritize i feel like we're very mobilized by death as a population like when it comes to nicotine and cigarettes or opioids and overdose and all of these really really negative in-your-face outcomes, but as you and so many people listening to this know, someone's life could be completely bulldozed by an addiction that has nothing to do with a chemical that you put into your body. And so I'm looking forward to chatting with you a bit more about this today, because truth be told, you probably have decades more experience in this even than, than I do.
0: Well, you are the substance abuse guy and substance disorder, so I think that we share in our experience. But let me say a little bit of how I look at this, and I really want to hear your feedback, is that I think of process addictions as naturally occurring functions, whether they're gambling, gaming, competitiveness, high levels of excitement, sex, eating. These are all parts of our naturally occurring things that bring us pleasure because they bring us to survive and have more babies. And so what it seems to me is that these very rewarding, naturally rewarding, appropriately rewarding, rewarding behaviors have kind of run off the rails in the same people, in, in different people who are doing the same thing, but out of control. So sex is a naturally occurring function. No sex, no babies, no babies, no carrying on the race. But when it runs off the rails, it's very different experience. So how do you think about sort of the origins and your understanding of the process addictions, why they even exist
1: you know I think it's a cross between exactly what you're saying. We're, we're wired to like these these intrinsically rewarding behaviors but and this might sound a little bit cynical. I think part of where things get get really wiggly is that when you cross that into a culture of convenience, which is where we are right now, like everything is right at our fingertips, particularly when we bring technology into the equation. But even beyond that, we've got this culture of uh, of convenience, but then there's this extra layer of capitalism and money and profit. And so you have these businesses or corporations, whether or not we're talking about what's going on with big tech or around like with gaming. porn, gambling, gaming. Yeah. This is
0: where the money is made, or what you're saying.
1: Right. So there's there's this need. There's this need to have pleasure, escape from pain. It's a very natural need in many ways. But then we've got all of these really highly stimulating ways to get it that people then make money the more you use. And so it creates this cyclone.
0: You know, I want to say something about that because in the old days when I went to a gas station, and of course I'm old, right? They pumped us gas. They did it for us. It was 29 cents a gallon that's all that was there. Maybe tires or, you know, smelly chemicals. I don't understand. But now when I go to a gas station, I walk in to pay for it. There's food everywhere. There's, it's sort of the convenience thing. It's like all of a sudden they've brought in candy bars and gum and every kind of drink you've ever wanted. And, and, you know, really short-term like potato chips, things you get a short-term reward from. And so I think that's what you're talking about is in the old days, we didn't have the technology to create this, to ship this, to create, or, or the porn, which was magazines.
1: And now it's instantaneous. And is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. Well, I mean, even just to share a quick anecdote. So I I am not the most, uh, well, I I do like technology, but I'm not as in with like the trends. Like when something new comes out, I'm not like first on the bandwagon. So I only first like had any experience like looking at uh, or creating content for TikTok like five or six months ago. And, you know, because so many people are using it, I felt like it was important that I I learned a little bit more about it. So I I create my account, I sign up, I say, I am a 37 year old male and immediately sexual content is on my phone. It was, it was like, it was like how it was, it was instantaneous that they had no data on me except for my age and my gender. And they know
0: you're still producing testosterone. And so as opposed to what they might pull up for me at 60 something.
1: I know it was astounding. I had liked nothing. It was just like, but that's what was there. And I think that when you talk about like big data, or we talk about like, even if you go back to the magazines, right, that's where that initial sex sells phrase came from, right? It was what you put on the cover of the magazine. That's now been amped up to 11 when it comes to algorithms and, you know, swipe left and all of these modern amenities, if you will, where we can just feed that desire Almost indefinitely, it feels like sometimes. And I
0: think we're stimulation seekers as humans, especially men. There is, you know, how many images did a magazine offer you versus all the intense, you know, you can stimulate, and I'm not talking about sexually, you can stimulate your brain and keep yourself distracted for hours and hours and hours. Whereas in the old days, how many, how long could you spend with a magazine? So you're talking about the speed at which the intensity is delivered to us in ways that it wasn't before.
1: Right. Well, and even things that aren't necessarily like algorithmically delivered. So I I recently spent the last week on a staycation actually. And for the first time in a long time, I stopped myself from even looking at my email and from getting on social media. And I did this by actually moving the icons on my phone. And it was incredibly interesting to see how many times I just automatically was like pressing these buttons to go to LinkedIn, which is where I spend a lot of time or to go to my work. It was almost like, clearly like a, like a comfort ritual for me where like, I would look and it's like, Oh, someone wants to talk to me. (laughs) That makes me feel good. Or someone interacted with my content. Yay. I'm, I'm reaching it. But it was, it was very eye opening. For me, And I, I know that coming back now this week, in terms of getting back into the swing of things, I have moved the icons back, but I'm being much more mindful about what I do with them. Because it's, it's interesting how quickly it reinforces these habits on us, even when it's not throwing sexual content at us. It's just we like to be seen or we like to be heard.
0: Well, let me just say to you that if you're watching TikTok, you are miles away from most of the adults I know. So you are more tech savvy than you think. And, you know, we can talk about all kinds of things that fascinate me around this. And we're going to talk again about, you know, uh, evolution and how the people who can manage all of that intensity are going to do better over time than the people genetically who can't. And we're going to reshape humans, really, based on our relationship with technology. Although I say we always have because, you know, fire is technology, wheels are technology. And so um, it's always influenced our evolution, But we should get back to the talking about process addictions, uh, of which sex and porn uh, is one of them. How do you find, you know, the struggle of like, how do people, you know, I could say to a friend, I don't understand, we go to dinner and I have a glass of wine and you have seven. And I kind of understand that you have a problem, Right, and you can't stop. At least I understand that over time. And to me, it's like I have a glass of wine to relax. You have a glass of wine just to feel better, just to feel okay. Just we're approaching it for completely different reasons. But when Mm -hmm. it comes to porn and sex, it seems hard for people to say, you know, I have a reasonable sex life that works for me, but you're out of control. And I just wonder, like, what's the difference?
1: So I, I like to break it down into a couple different main. Areas to look at when people are evaluating for themselves, like is this a problem for me, or has this moved into an, an addiction versus just, fill, you know, fill entertainment sort of, or yeah, a natural mm-hmm. need. The number one, and, and you alluded to this, has to do with the the relationship that you have to it. What's the purpose? And if something is just for fun oftentimes it does not dominate your time all the time it's not something that you need to have to relax or to feel powerful or to you know it, it doesn't fit that need it's just like the equivalent of you know like having a cookie sometimes and be like oh that was nice like the, that was dessert that made me feel good but if i didn't have the cookie it's not like i'd be thinking about it all night and couldn't. well you wouldn't I would, (laughs) but that's a whole different story.
0: Anyway, it wouldn't obsess me to the point where I couldn't tolerate it. And then when I had one cookie, it's like you have to have more and go to the grocery store and get 10 more boxes. And the craziness is what you're
1: talking about. Right. The the relationship to the cookie, right? You look at that and be like, okay, clearly this is not just a cookie for you. This is is turned into something else. But that's Mm -hmm. one. Another one has to do with... Whether or not you continue a behavior despite negative outcomes. And I think that's where with addictions, it can get really tricky because I, I I view and I might have mentioned this when we were speaking the other day, but I view addiction like uh it, it's very antithetical to how we normally learn about what's harmful and helpful in our life. So if you think about it, like touching a hot stove, you touch a hot stove. And you're like, ow, that hurts. I'm not going to do that again. But with addictive processes, and that goes for porn and sex and gambling, these sorts of things, you touch it and you're like, ooh, that actually feels pretty nice. I think I like it. Or I I can tolerate that and other people may.
0: It doesn't bother me as much as it might someone else.
1: Right. But then you get to mm-hmm. rationalize why the consequences that are happening down the line are because, oh, they just don't understand, or I, you know, I belong in a different culture, or uh, it's because other people... It, there's, there's lots of ways to explain away why the problems that the behavior is causing in your life is not actually because of the problem, but because of something else.
0: So what you're saying is that healthy people, if something bad happens, they see it as a mistake, they learn from the mistake. But it sounds like that's not what addicts do.
1: Mm-hmm. either either they learn from the mistake or they they couple the negative feedback to the behavior so it's either the behavior for if if someone has an addiction the behavior is so rewarding to them that it overpowers the negative the, the, the negative outcome or they find a way to explain the way of the negative outcome to something else you mean like saying
0: it's my wife's fault it's it's the the my time of life it's how men are you mean stuff like that explaining it away
1: yeah i mean i've I've heard someone say that that you know when when they were with sex workers a lot that it didn't count as cheating because they weren't having intercourse and because it wasn't intercourse it wasn't cheating and that was how they rationalized not telling their wife about it for many 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 years because they were like i'm not cheating because it's not this one thing
0: or i'm really getting a massage at the same time so it isn't like i'm Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Or, or like, I'm not as bad as these other people, right? The downward social comparison. Now, of course, when the wife finds out, she doesn't feel the same way. Right. But until there's that, that there's that transparency about it, it's very easy to continue to tell yourself that rationalization, to lie to yourself that way so that you don't have to have the discomfort of feeling like you're hurting someone you love either, you know, overtly or by omission. So this challenge you see it with and again you know
0: this idea that i can stop but you can't and then when you bring in sexuality and this idea of oh my god they're out of control sexually or even they're out of control of spending you know those are very scary prospects in in the world being out of control sexually everyone thinks oh my children which is totally not true but Mm -hmm. they do they perhaps and it's a question for you is there more stigma when you look at gambling, gaming, sex, eating, for sure, versus drinking or using.
1: Oh, that's that's a really good question. So, I, I want to share a thought that that I had just last night, actually, that I think relates to this about sigma and normalization. I'd love. I'm, I'm going to dodge your question for a second with one coming back at you. So, I, I, I got an email uh, from Peacock, you know, like the streaming service. I think that you know previously was NBC, talking about. Uh here's something for your weekend binge. And I was like wait a second so like when has binging become a good thing? Like why are we using that term as if it's a good thing? And it makes me think also about how people advertise games as being addictive as if that's a good thing. Like you want to play an addictive game. And so it's it's very interesting to me in some ways where I I know what you mean about this question of well like some people can handle it why can't you? Does that make you feel like you're inferior at the same time? There's, I feel like there's these areas, whether or not it's culturally sometimes with alcohol or people who sit on a couch all weekend watching Netflix or or whatever it is, where we're actually saying like, no, no, this is a perfectly normal thing to do. We're going to say binging is just something that's fun and something that's enjoyable versus the definition, which is harmful use of something. So I mean, I'd love to get your take on that. Like, is there almost like a normalization of process addiction? So it has to get to a huge extreme before people even notice. Well, I think over
0: time, we've seen a lot of changes in relationship to behavior. You know, if you saw me looking at porn maybe 15 or 20 years ago, you might have a different thought about me than if you saw me looking at porn today. I got to say, though, so when I had a when my partner was sick for about six weeks and I really had to be home changing towels and changing seats and all that stuff, I binged on Downton Abbey. I watched every, I probably watched 74 episodes in a row, just because I had nothing to do. And I liked the show when I saw it occasionally. And so, yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying, which is the language of addiction has now been integrated in a way that sounds like, oh, I want to binge on this show. And you're like, good, I'm really glad you saw the whole thing. So in, in the language changing, how do you think that affects the situation we could just say oh my god he spent all weekend looking at that and that was crazy and um, so how does the language of this make a difference
1: well kind of like you know in the clinically when we talk about like binge drinking for example like we we know that that leads to more negative outcomes like when people have two enough drinks that's when they drive drunk that's when they black out that's when you see rapes and assaults and things like that so we want to minimize Binge drinking. But the problem is that when something becomes so enmeshed in culture, like if you described binge drinking to somebody in college, they'd be like, that's just normal life. (laughs) You know, and I think that's where the harm comes, right? Because we we accept the exceptional in a negative way. We accept this really in high intensity of substance use or sexual behavior, whatever it is, when we when we normalize that, we open ourselves up as as a culture, I feel like the pain that comes from just having that be the way things are. And thinking about marijuana and thinking
0: about how the culture viewed it in the largest sense before. I think I saw a New Year's show a couple of years ago where people were saying, Oh, the ball has dropped. But instead of tipping the champagne, where everybody's like, oh, you know, okay, they're a couple glasses of champagne, happy new year, the reporter was stoned. And mm. everyone was like, How can that reporter smoke marijuana? And how come she's not pulled off the air? And, you know, how can they promote? And I'm thinking, I, I actually think marijuana is probably less harmful to your body than alcohol. So I don't know how this relates, but that's kind of where my mind went and where, let's say pot smoking was when you had to go see Oscar downtown at three in the morning to get an ounce and hope you weren't arrested versus I go to this really pretty store now and they're all nice, nice people and they're making money in the stock market, by the way. So I think what you're talking about in part is the transition between something that wasn't wasn't fully acceptable and wasn't fully understood into something that's like, oh yeah, I do that or we do that. That kind of thing. I can't imagine a man saying to his wife 30 years ago, by the way, I look porn on a regular basis. I hope that doesn't bother you. But I hear that all
1: the time now. Right. Well, and I think the question is, you know, like in some cases that can be viewed as positive change and accepting difference, or like that can be positive. In some ways, though, when we normalize behaviors that are actually harmful and dangerous... That's when, like, like, I can't tell you how many scenarios in which binging is actually not something to be celebrated, right? That that I work with when I'm working with clients and patients on a regular basis. And so, getting back to your question about process and like where do we draw the line? I, I feel like in some ways, unless we're having like an anchor point with consequences, like is this affecting your social life? Is this affecting your marriage? Is this affecting your physical health? It's all societally defined.
0: You know, I love these subjects and you and I for sure, and I hope we do, spend a lot of time talking. We're at different stages of our careers, where you are as a whole new set of knowledge, where I am as a whole set of knowledge. So we're gonna, I hope, do some work together. But I wanna jump to, I think insurance companies will pay for drugs and alcohol. I think an insurance Mm -hmm. company will pay for an eating disorder problem. I'm sure they will not play for, pay for gaming. They may, I think there are resources for gamblers, but there are a lot of the process addictions because they're not seen as a problem or not accepted, or you know, they're what everybody does to different degrees, or maybe insurance companies just don't wanna pay for another thing. But why aren't we supported in looking at some of the addictions that clearly we're struggling with? Why don't they have diagnoses? Why aren't we talking about them? We know they exist do mucky mucks who are high up in the research field or they just say, oh, you know, we don't want to be bothered with that.
1: Well, I, I run into that problem sometimes just with coding when people are coming in for s- sexual impulsivity, essentially, is like what you have to code it as. I think we do have something for internet gaming disorder now and the most recent ICD. Mm. I think that finally got got added, but that doesn't mean insurance will cover it. Mm-mm. The have CS compulsive
0: sexual behaviors order also in the ICD, but in our American
1: diagnostic manuals, we don't. In the DSM, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I mean, I think it really comes down again to this question of, are we going to acknowledge... The validity of a psychological or behavioral process, and that's always been. I feel like, because when we talk about diagnostic classifications, I feel like we're bridging over into psychiatry a little bit. That's always mm-hmm. been what's so wiggly about psychiatry is they like to like you know, when we talk about medicine, physicians like to talk about the body, like what could you see in the brain or biomarkers in the blood. Like you can do a tox screen, right, and you can see different metabolites of substances in the blood. You, you could point to that, or you could see, you know, we could talk about serotonin in the brain and those sorts of things but how it's much more difficult to quantify i feel like in that way and really operationalize like how do you see a gambling disorder or sexual disorder of some sort you know is is it something that you can point at or does it just have to be defined essentially by proxy which is when you talk about behaviors how they look at it. Like if you have this condition, you're going to exhibit these behaviors. They don't view that as tight of a link as like say a biomarker or some sort of activation on a brain scan, like an fMRI.
0: But you can see that brains change when someone is compulsive versus not. I mean, I think there is some research on porn where people have come in and say I have a problem and people who don't. And they're both shown pornography, and it's very clear that the brain works differently when someone is addicted versus someone who is just enjoying some sexual experience. So do you think we're getting there, or do you think it's just so
1: much more work has to be done? So I think we could. Uh, We certainly could get there. What this makes me think about is, I I know for a while, and I I will admit being out of touch with this research now, the VA was looking at using brain scans to diagnose PTSD. And so like, if you were to do an fMRI. Can you explain what an fMRI is? I'm not sure everyone understands what that is. Yeah, fMRI. it's called it's functional magnetic resonance image uh, imaging or imagery. And basically what it allows you to see is what areas of someone's brain light up in different situations. So what you were referring to earlier about seeing addiction in the brain is that if you showed somebody who had an addiction to pornography pornography, you'd see parts of their brain light up brighter than someone who does not have that same problem. Their brain would still light up because it's naturally reinforcing, it's naturally stimulating. Or even different parts of the brain might light up. They're right, or even even different parts of the brain. And so technically speaking, if we came up with some sort of standardized measure, yeah, I mean, maybe we could put someone in, but the problem is that it's an expensive procedure. I believe there's some radiation involved in doing it, so it's not necessarily something that people would consent to all the time.
0: And not everyone wants to go to a porn study and volunteer.
1: Right. Yeah. Or like, how, is this? <laughs> maybe what's going to happen in the future is, is once someone like is 20 years old, we're going to stick them in one of these machines and just show them pictures of like sex and death and alcohol and, like, and games, this, mm-hmm. games, all this other stuff and see, and you know, we could just screen to see, you know, how their brain compares to the normal distribution of other people's brains. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, the logistics of it are tough. It seems to me in
0: part, and you know, Seeking Integrity has dual focus programs. So we're really looking at mental health, or we're really looking at someone's drug and alcohol use in relationship to the sexual behavior that they're there for. And one of the things that I found almost universally, whether it's nonprofit or insurance based or really high end fancy places for addiction, is they seem to just focus on the drugs and alcohol. And they don't see that someone's let's say, going to see sex workers, that's where the drugs are, you know? So I understand that many people will not be able to sober because they go to the sexual behavior and that's when they end up getting high. And But that's not, in fact, I've had a bunch of people at Seeking Integrity who went through great substance abuse programs, but then they fell on their face because these other pieces that we don't talk about or really recognize are what we call co-occurring. They're happening at the same time. So is there discussion, interest, You know, it doesn't seem to me it's showing up in treatment, but how do those sort of cross or co occurring things is so obvious to me why this person can't get well. How does it look like from research, from sort of the level at which you're looking at that kind of
1: thing? So I'll start with the punchline, which is that I agree with you completely. Separating these things out, it, it kind of reminds me how. I've never understood why dental insurance is like, why are teeth different than the rest of your body or eyes? Right. Or eyes. Yeah. It's like, how is this? Why did we make these divisions? I don't understand. I'm sure there's, I I hope there's a good reason, but it's the same. (laughs) It's the same idea to me. Uh, So, so you and I met because I, I watched one of your training seminars online and you had a, A quote in there that really stuck with me was that, like, a lot of therapists like like to pretend the body doesn't exist from the neck down. They don't even ask about sex during intake screenings. It's like, even though it's such a critical part of everybody's life, it's like there's this level of discomfort even from the clinical side where people don't even ask about it. And I feel like that's kind of what you're talking about with the siloed nature of treatment in a way, where it is just like this hyper focus on one part of the equation, on just say the substances or just The addictive behavior, or just the mental health,
0: but they don't. I've been a mental health worker, when nobody says, "How much do you drink?" I mean, not a word. You know, I've seen that at the at that end.
1: Right. Well, it's because, and not everyone might agree with, with with this statement, but I essentially, at its core, view addictive behaviors simply as overgrown or like malignant coping mechanisms. You're 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 trying to deal with something, and you're using a method of doing it, a strategy to do it that's ultimately counterproductive, but you're just trying to achieve some sense of peace and stability and relaxation, which is a very natural thing to look for. You can find that outside
0: of, like, if I have obsessive-compulsive disorder, I'm washing Mm -hmm. my hands over and over again to release anxiety, or I'm checking the stove, or, well, why isn't that an addiction? They're doing it to relieve anxiety. I mean, I always thought that if something's pleasurable, it's more of an addiction. If something is not pleasurable, it's more of a compulsion. But the whole thing is mixed together in a mess. So
1: there's there's overlaps in the Venn diagram. I, so the way the word that I use, I, I I think it's a technical term. I know I picked it up once upon a time and have held on to it. Is that it, it's a safety behavior. So like when you talk about OCD and either like the tics or the rituals, that's something that someone does to avoid a, a terrible outcome and that's what's going on in their mind and i think that when it comes to substances or process addictions you're still trying to avoid the terrible outcome which is probably feeling your feelings right you're trying to to, to escape from it so there's definitely some overlap there but ultimately i don't think you can separate that it's like cause and effect right like if you you can't take the antecedent out of it you've you've got to look both at the mental health at the stimulus at like what you're struggling to deal with And then the strategy that someone sunk into that maybe in and of itself has become self-reinforcing.
0: You you have to do both. But but we don't. But we don't. Yeah. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com.